Did everyone get one of these? There are handouts available at the back and on this table and downstairs, and you can follow along on the outline. There's also some discussion questions that we will be getting into as well. Take note of this, because I think it's kind of the summary of our passage this morning. The depth of your character determines the breadth of your contribution. The depth of your character determines the breadth of your contribution. Let me say it another way. The quality of your resolve predicts the quality of your results. That's kind of a summation, I think, of where we're, where we're headed, where the text is going to lead us to today. You know, we've all seen so many examples lately of what happens when charisma outpaces or outgrows character. It's a real problem, especially in an age where anybody that wants to be famous can become famous through building for themselves a platform on social media. Uh, the number one job that kids today say that they want to have when they grow up is not an astronaut, not a doctor, not a lawyer, TikTok influencer. If you're over the age of 60, you're like, what does that mean? Does that mean you fix clocks? What does that, what does that mean? TikTok influencer? Okay, that's a platform where, yeah, I, I can't even explain it because I don't even understand it. TikTok influence. So we live in a day where if you want to be famous, if you want to have a platform, you can go and you can create that for yourself. And that has sort of had an effect on Christianity, I think, in, in ways that are significant. One of the ways is that, that people um, that probably would, in a normal scenario, not be someone of significant influence, now large amounts of the church are all looking to these certain individuals um, for how they should think about ethics and theology and, and worldview and all kinds of things. Um, and and the, the, the position of the local church pastor in many ways has changed from what it should be, which is sort of just um, shepherding a small group of people and being available to. Now there's these mega church pastors that have these mega platforms and they're not, they're not just preaching to a few hundred or even a few thousand. They're, they're, their sermons are being you know, cast all over the world. And, and, and that's not necessarily always a bad thing, but here's when it becomes a problem. It becomes a problem when your charisma or your platform outgrows your character. When there's not really enough um, substance to, to sort of hold on to the platform. What we need in the church today is not more fame. We need more faithfulness. Amen? What we need in the church today is not more celebrity Christians. What we need is more sanctified Christians. Would you agree? Yeah. We, we need not more breadth Without true depth, we, need, uh, we don't just need more charisma, we need more character. We don't just need bigger platforms, we need authentic reform. We don't just need more influencers, but we need authentic lives that are worth influence or worth emulating. We need ministries that have staying power. Ministries that have staying power. You know what I mean by that? I mean ministries that don't just have starting power, but ministries that have staying power. There's a lot, a lot of Christian leaders in the world in the last 10 years that had great starting power, but their staying power was not there. Why? Because their character was not compatible with their charisma. And their, their, their convictions didn't match their influence. It's kind of like the difference between Ikea furniture and antique furniture. Have you guys ever helped a friend move? And they're like, hey, can you move that couch? You're like, sure, Ikea right? It's like, it's like it's filled with helium. We're like, is this thing even made out of real wood, right? There's, I mean, but here's the thing about Ikea. You put it together fast. It's super cheap. It's super easy. It's super quick, uh, but it falls apart in the first year, right? And then you help, you know, your friend move that like ancient China hutch and you're like, oh, are you going to pay my doctor bill now that I have a bulged disc in my back, right? So, so the, the reality is like when something is built to, to have a lifespan to it, it's built with quality. Um, now, it's not just how long you've been walking with Jesus that builds this character into you. Uh, it's not just, well, you know, it, it takes a long time. It, sometimes it does build a long time, take a long time to build character. But here's the thing. Daniel was about 15 years old. Isn't that crazy? He's about 15 years old. And Daniel, at, at, at such a young age, already had baked into him a very robust sense of character 
a very big uh, quality of conviction in his own heart. Today, we're going to see this up front. We're going to get to know the person of Daniel very uh, intrinsically today, very, very uniquely. And we're going to see who this man really was and why his ministry had staying power. Um, spoiler alert, the last verse in our text today said that Daniel's ministry or Daniel's uh, career, it, it lasted all the way to King Cyrus the Persian. Okay, and Daniel was a significant influence all that time. We don't read any... I'm sure that, that Daniel was, was a fallen man, but, but we don't read any compromises in character in the life of Daniel in, in the entirety of his, his life. His ministry had staying power. And I think what we're going to see today was what was it about Daniel that gave quality to his character? What was it about Daniel that made him someone uh, that had that a ministry that had staying power? We're going to see the connection between Daniel's clairvoyance. If you don't know, Daniel was an interpreter of prophetic dreams, and then he had his own prophetic visions. We're going to see some of them as we go through the book. We're, we're going to see the connection between Daniel's clairvoyance and Daniel's character, and there is a connection there. We're going to see that Daniel had already had character formed. His identity was already formed. So even though um, Nebuchadnezzar did his best to try to create an identity for Daniel, there was no identity to be created because God had already solidified who Daniel was. His identity was already made. Uh, the, way to be f- to, the way not to be formed by culture is to already have been formed by Christ. Daniel had already been formed in many ways, and we'll see that this morning. Now, just a quick theological kind of primer here before we jump into the text. I want to remind you of something, kind of big picture theology point here, and that is that God put man on the earth largely to be an extension of his kingdom administration. We talked about this a little bit two weeks ago. We talked about the garden that God, that was an extension campus. This earth is an extension campus of God's rule in heaven. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So may your kingdom and the administration and the, the attributes of your kingdom break into this kingdom. That's always been God's will. From the garden all the way to the cross, all the way to the new church. God's will, all the way to Revelation 21, God's will has always been that his kingdom and his shalom and his peace and his rule would break into this world until it envelops the entire thing. Now, discipline was one of the reasons God kicked the Israelites out of Jerusalem into exile. Okay, we've been learning about this, right, the last two weeks. But it wasn't the only reason. God didn't just send the Israelites out of their land into Babylon because he was disciplining them. He also kicked them out for a purpose. And it might surprise you to know, when you read this in the book of Jeremiah, that that one of the primary reasons God sent the Israelites into Babylon, into the world, into this pagan culture, ready for it, was to bless Babylon. Isn't that crazy? You're saying, wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to leave pagan societies and move to culture, move to like Christian cultures. Like, aren't we all supposed to move to Tennessee and stuff? Like, isn't that like, that's what all my friends are doing. Like, they're leaving Oregon, right? Wait, you're saying that God sent the remnant, his best, the cream of the crop, the faithful covenant following Christians like Daniel and the three friends of his into Babylon to bless? Yeah, I'm saying that. But why would God do that? The same reason that he put us on this earth in the first place. God's desire is that his kingdom rule would break into this world through his people and through the way that we live and through the way that we conduct ourselves and our our witness is to the nations. God has left us here and sent us here to be a witness to the nations of our king and of his kingdom. That's why we're here. So when God gave the great commission, he said what? Go into the world And propagate Christian culture. No, that's not what he said. He said, go into the world and make disciples, teaching them, instructing them to do all that he has taught. So so the job of the church is to, to expand the kingdom of God through the process of discipleship. We are to fill the world with God's kingdom rule, God's kingdom shalom, that just means peace, uh, through the process of making disciples. And what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who is being formed into the thinking and the image and the life of Christ. This is our job. It's the job of the local church. Now, what we are to be to the world is like a sample. You guys go to Costco? I know you do. You guys, sometimes, sometimes. And if you don't have a membership, you like borrow your mom's, you know. Um, you go to Costco and they have samples. 
And the samples are trying to get you to what? Buy the thing, right? Like buy the thing. Hey, you want a like little tiny bite of this burrito? It's, we're so confident that this burrito is so good that you're going to buy a whole case of these burritos. And you can't just buy one burrito at Costco. You have to buy 5,000 burritos at Costco. That's why the carts are so big, right? And we're all big because of it. Okay. Um, sorry. I'm off script. I'm off script. I'm sorry. Supersize me. Okay. So we go to Costco, and there's samples. And the reason there's samples is because there's, they're, they're confident that if you try the product, you're going to like the product. Okay, you guys are samples to this world of the kingdom of God. You understand that? Your, your life, your presence, your character, the way that you live is a sample to this world. And that's what Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most important writings, one of the most important teachings of Christ in which he depicts what the kingdom of God looks like when it's living in this world. He said you are to be what? Salt and light. Okay? What good is salt if it's lost its saltiness? What good is light if it's not lighting the way, right? And he said you're a city on a hill. You're a counterculture. You are an alternate society. You're an alternative option for the world. They're supposed to look at your life and go, what is it that you're part of? And who are these people that you hang out with? And what is it about that that's different? You're a witness. You're a witness to God's kingdom rule. Now, I, I say all of that because what you're going to see here is you're going to see that God takes his best and he gives them to Babylon and that they actually benefit the pagan society and the pagan administration and the pagan rule of a terrible dictator in his empire. And you're thinking, what's up with that? Daniel, as well as us, we are witnesses. We are samples to this world. And the key to that is that our character needs to fit with our message. We need to be people that not only speak the gospel, but have lives that show that we actually believe the gospel. And when, and when, we, have, uh, when we have incompatibility between our lives and our message, we lose our saltiness. When people go, yeah, that sounds like a great message, but I don't think you're actually believing it. Then your message loses its, its validity. And this is why holiness matters. It matters for a lot of reasons, but it really matters when it comes to the way that the world sees us. So Daniel is a perfect example of what it means to be salt and what it means to be light. It's going to be, mark my words, it's going to become increasingly difficult to know where to stand and how to stand and what to stand for in the days to come. The lines are getting very blurry what is Orthodox Christianity? What is considered, uh, you know, what does the Bible actually say on certain issues? It's becoming very convoluted. And so this is a perfect opportunity for us to have this discussion. When do we stand for something? How did Daniel stand for something? So here's the outline. Uh, we're going to look at verses 8 through 21. Uh, first, if you want to write it in your, your handout, uh, we're going to see the depth of their resolve. That's verses 8 through 16. The depth of their resolve. And verses 17 through 21, we're going to see the breadth of their results. The depth of their resolve and the breadth of their results. Let's, let's look at the verse we read together, verse 8. But Daniel, note the word, underline it, highlight it. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Let me give you a little backstory. What's going on with this? Daniel and his friends were, as we've already learned, they were ripped out of their homeland by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and they were deported the first wave. There was three waves. They were the first wave uh, to be brought into the homeland of Babylon, which was a city. And the first wave was the royals and the influential and the affluential. It was the cream of the crop. It was the most educated. It was the most good-looking. It was the most skilled in, 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 uh, in Jerusalem. And that, that happened all over the world, by the way. That wasn't just what they did to Israel. Nebuchadnezzar is building an empire, okay? And he is an empire. And, and so what he does is he reaches his hands into all the corners of the earth, including podunk little Israel, okay, off in the, in the Middle East and in Palestinian. He, he reaches his hands and he grabs the best people and he brings them in and he starts a school, a three-year school in which he can raise up for himself a very well-trained and very well-pedigreed uh, cabinet, essentially, 
that are going to be his advisors and his ambassadors and his, um, his go-to guys for, for counsel and for all kinds of different things. So he puts them in this intensive <coughs> three-year training program and caught among that group, uh, group was a small sampling of Israelites. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We're familiar with these, these characters. These were young men. Okay, typically, we're going to reprogram someone. We, we reprogram them young, so watch out for your kids, right? So, so he, he grabs these kids, and these kids were used to being in royal settings. It actually says they were part of the royal family, uh, that they were part of the nobility, uh, and that these kids were recruited specifically for this, this program. Now, this would include re-education and re-enculturation. Okay, into the customs and the cultures of Babylon. So they're going to teach them history. They're going to teach them economics and languages and religion. They're going to make sure that they're a useful resource for the kingdom of Babylon. Think about this. If you were part of the cabinet of the president, what, what would be included in that would be being accessible to the president at all times. So it would be very important that you understood the customs of particular situations. So if you're going to fly with the president, guess what? You're going to ride on Air Force One. You're going to eat the president's food. You're going to get on, you're going to jump in the president's limo or whatever it is. And then when you go to places, you're going to be close because he needs to be able to access you as an advisor or as a counselor or as an ambassador or as the PR person or whatever it is. So Daniel's grooming these young men to be his personal entourage, his personal cabinet of advisors. And so he puts them through their paces. He puts them through this training. And what he wants them to be is he wants them to be very healthy. And so he puts his money where his mouth is. He invests in the, the, um, the, the diet of these men by saying, you're going to eat the food that I eat. Okay? Now, th th this wasn't junk food. This would have been the best food. Food sourced from all around the ends of the earth, the best and finest meats imaginable, cooked and prepared perfectly. The best personal chef. So this is kind of what's happening here. Now, you should be asking, if you're curious, you should be asking, Daniel, why is this the hill that you decide to die on? I mean, why is this the thing? Let, let me give you some other things that Daniel could have raised a flag about. Um, he, he was ripped out of his homeland. Okay. He was given a new profession, probably a new haircut. He was given a new name. Okay. Fine. Um, he was probably castrated. Okay, I'm serious. We don't know this for sure. But who's in charge of Daniel, the chief of the eunuchs? It's a good chance Daniel was a eunuch. Uh, this is what ancient powerful kings would do because his chief guys would be around the harem and he doesn't want them fooling around with his harem. Okay, so there it is. He doesn't seem that we know about. He doesn't go, I refuse to be castrated. I mean, if, anyone, if there was going to be a hill that you would die on, I would choose that hill. Give me the meat. I, don't castrate me, please. Okay, that's, that's kind of what I would think. But for whatever reason, this is, this is the hill he's going to die on. Uh, he's, here, here's another one. He's taught their religion, and he's even taught their magic. Isn't that crazy? These guys are the Chaldeans, the Babylonians of Chaldeans. They're magicians. And so Daniel is okay with learning or at least observing the magic arts. But when it comes to the food from the king's table, he goes, uh-uh, not doing it. So why? We just, just, why is Daniel so concerned about the king's meats? Well, commentators don't agree, but here's some of the possible reasons. Could have been that the food specifically would have been largely made up of foods that were against the dietary restrictions of the Mosaic law. Okay, if you read the book of Leviticus, you're going to find that there's this whole list of things that the Israelites were not to eat, partly for health reasons, but also partly because they were just to be different than the culture. Okay, so pork. Bummer, right? But we're in the New Covenant. Praise God. Read the New Testament. Amen? Yes. Could have been that this food was sacrificed to idols. It's actually almost positive that this food was sacrificed to idols. And we know that Old Testament Christians, they had a real thing with that. So, so it, this, this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, he thought that he received power from the gods if his meal, if his plate was given to the gods first and then he ate it. So there's that. It could have been that sharing a table with Nebuchadnezzar was in some way linking himself intimately to him in fellowship. 
And it also could have been that the blood was not properly drained from the animals, which also would have been going against the Levitical law. Now, why exactly Daniel chose not to eat the food isn't the point. The point is that he chose not to eat the food. And we can, uh, we can probably believe with confidence that Daniel had a good reason. And here's, here's where we come to a point here. There is a point where unity and solidarity with the systems and sovereigns of this world has to end. There are lines that have to be drawn. Okay? There are lines that have to be drawn. And I don't necessarily want to get into the weeds of where those lines are, but I think this is a good opportunity just, just to simply say that, guys, we should be salt and we should be light to the world, but there will come a point in your workplace, in your, in your system, in the, in the culture that you live, where you will have to say, no, I will not do that. Where that line is becomes a much harder conversation. Let me give you some things I just jotted down quickly that could become issues if they're not already issues for some of you guys. Should taxpayer-funded money, or should taxpayer money fund abortions? That, that's a hard thing to think about, man. We live in Oregon. We, we live in Oregon. This is crazy. Medical professionals potentially being forced to perform abortions or lose their jobs. These are realities people are having to deal with. Police being forced to enforce rules that compromise their convictions. Business owners being forced to endorse same-sex unions by providing products or services. Now, again, I'm not giving a list of here's what I think about all these. I'm just saying here's some pinch points. Here's some friction points that are coming up right now for Christians in our culture, in our zip code. How about this one? Being forced to use someone's pronouns or not. Now, that's a debate right now in Christianity. Should we use pronouns? Should we not use pronouns? I'm talking about someone's preferred pronouns. I'm not going down that road right now. I'm just saying you might be forced by your workplace to do that. What are you going to do? What do you think? Those are things to think about. Um, coaches in sports organizations choosing whether or not to allow the opposite sex to compete uh, because they're transgender on certain teams. Uh, here's one that terrifies me, and this, this is coming fast. It's actually, I think it's, it's ha almost happening in California right now. Potentially having to report parents as abusive if they are not affirming to their child's preferred gender. So you might get your kids removed, literally. And then if you're, if you're a mandatory reporter, you could, be, you could be held liable for not reporting someone. This is just crazy. This is crazy stuff, right? We, we live in a world that is, a, is ruled by a completely different sovereign. And there's going to be incompatibility. And my point is simply this. There are points where we may have to choose where we will have to choose which hill to die on. Now, for Daniel, he, he was okay with a lot of stuff, but there did come a point where he said, okay, we're going to draw the line here. So what? Well, our goal should not be to declare war on the pagans. You notice Daniel doesn't do that. He doesn't try to assassinate Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he, I don't know. Just, he doesn't. But he respectfully declines. He remains salt and light in the earth while not compromising his values. Uh, let me just give you... Uh, Romans 12.2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be rather transformed by the renewing of your minds so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I'm not going to stand up here and say, here's the, things you should, here's the hills you should die on uh, when it comes to cultural ethics. I'm going to say, you need to be transformed by the Lord. You need to be connected to Christ. You need to have the spirit at control of your thinking so that you can make good decisions in your workplace. So when your boss says, hey, I want you to do this, and you go, uh, that's defiling for me, that you know when to disagree and how to disagree and where lines need to be drawn. And listen, how we respectfully decline has huge implications. And I think as Americans, sometimes we're really good at disagreeing with things. As American Christians, I think we could be better about how we disagree with things. Posting very snarky, very salty, very angry things on Facebook is not a good application of Daniel chapter 1. Okay? Let me just remind you, there's nothing disrespectful in here about how Daniel disagrees. He's very respectful. I'll get into that in just a second. How we disagree, the younger generation is looking at. Now, I, want just, I just want to bring up one little interesting point. These young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were about 15 when they were carried away. So they had about 15 years to be formed, probably by their parents. But also, if you go and you read your Bible, you'll realize that they lived under the administration of a king named Josiah. 
And not only did they live under his administration, they were royals, they were nobles, so they probably would have known this king. They would have lived under this king and they would have seen Josiah made some costly reforms for the Lord. He was a good king. He made some righteous decisions. And these young men saw it. So let me just say, Christians, young people need to not just see what you would disagree with, but how you disagree with them. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your light. We do need to take a stand on things, but that doesn't give you permission to be an angry conservative. It doesn't give you permission to punch the, 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 the leader of the eunuchs verbally on Facebook, okay? You notice Daniel doesn't take it out on middle management. Like, Daniel isn't upset. It, like, like, he's not upset at the person that told him to do it because he knows it's not even his decree. So let me just give you, just really quick, um, but let's, let's keep going. Let's, let's, keep, let's continue. Therefore, we're in uh, verse 8. Therefore, Daniel asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Who's the chief of the eunuchs? He's the guy in charge of the school. He's the guy who, who, who's getting paid um, probably pretty well to make sure that this crew of young men get adequately indoctrinated and, and raised up and, and, and ready so that Nebuchadnezzar's investment pays off. Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Can I just say as a side note, that should be the first thing you pray for. God, give me favor in my workplace. I know that you guys work in secular, many of you work in secular workplaces. Many of you are put in impossible decisions where it's so hard to know when to stand. The first thing we should be praying for is God, show favor in the eyes of my bosses and the eyes of our, our authorities. Now, verse 10, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, note this, I fear my Lord, the king, lowercase l. Who's he talking about? Nebuchadnezzar. I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned, to you, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So what kind of king is Nebuchadnezzar? Is he the kind of king that demotes his people? Uh, no, he's the kind of king that takes the heads off of his people. That's the kind of king that, that is running the empire here, right? And Daniel said to the steward from the, the chief of the eunuchs, uh, had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and whatever to drink, or water to drink, not whatever, water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So basically, Daniel says, hey, here's a low-risk way for us to determine whether or not we should have to keep eat the food from the king's table. Why don't you give us 10 days, and we'll just eat vegetables, and after those 10 days, it'll be long enough to tell if we look weak and sickly and like a vegetarian, or... Um, Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I love you, vegetarians. God loves you. The gospel is good news for you. Um, and part of the New Testament, you know, okay. Anyway, so, so he says, we'll just eat vegetables. 10 days is long enough to where, hey, after 10 days, like, you, you know, if, if we look a little hungry, like, no harm, no foul, right? So, so this guy signs on to it. Now, I want you to see this. The call here is to test uh, the call here is the servant to test the faithfulness of the Lord, not the diet of the Lord. Okay, now you'll see that in the passage. I'll talk about that more in a moment. Verse 14, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance, fatter in flesh, than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Okay, no, this is not a passage about why we should all be vegans. I'm sorry for some of you, you're like, right? Like, no. Okay, here's the point. What is on display here is not the superiority of a meatless diet. What is on display here is the su superiority of God's provision when we take a stand that is a faith stand. Okay, let me just get this straight. By natural metrics, Daniel would have been more healthy, metabolically, metabolically speaking, eating the macronutritionally rich diet from the king. There's just no question. Okay, now nowadays, you can be a vegetarian and you can eat supplemental proteins and all kinds of stuff to make sure that you're getting other. But in these days, there's no way they would have been healthier eating vegetables. Why are they healthier eating vegetables? Because God is supernaturally providing for them. 
Okay, so don't read this and go, oh, see, we, should be, we shouldn't be eating meat. It wasn't about the meat. It was about the fact that Daniel was taking a stand for righteousness and God supplemented him with what he needed. Okay, and by the way, don't fall for the lie that you need to subscribe to the world's program to get the world's results. It would have been really easy for Daniel to go, this is just not a big deal. Think about how much stronger I'm going to be if I eat this really good food. You know how many times in your secular workplace where you're going to be forced to go, you know, I'd probably be more successful if I did go to that party and I did do this thing and I did talk like the other people and I did kind of personality mirror the worldliness in my, in my job. Don't fall for that lie. The point here is that God is supplementally and supernaturally sustaining Daniel in his conviction so that he hasn't lost anything. In fact, he actually gets stronger. So sometimes faithfulness, by the way, doesn't end this way. Okay, I just want to say that because, you know, you shouldn't read this and be like, okay, anytime I take a stand for holiness, that means I'm going to get stronger. Sometimes you're actually going to lose. This could have gone a different way. And uh, read the book of Jeremiah. This poor prophet did all the right things, and he had all the wrong results. Faithfulness doesn't always mean you're going to get the outcome. Watch out for that. That's American legalism. And it says, do what God wants, and he'll give you what you want. You know, d kiss dating goodbye, and you'll have a perfect sex life with your wife and husband. Maybe not. Don't do drugs. Don't smoke. And you'll have a great life, and you'll be successful. Maybe not. Because the point isn't about getting a perfect life now. The point is faithfulness to God. Okay, that's where real joy is. So just, just keep that in mind. But in this particular case, God supplements Daniel. Now, um, how should we respectfully decline, by the way? Let me just, just quick side note on this. How should we respectfully, because that's kind of what Daniel's doing here. He's respectfully declining. First of all, he does draw a line, okay? Um, love is not being a pushover, okay? Right? Love is not being a pushover. Love isn't just saying, yeah, do whatever you want, Okay? Uh, he doesn't speak evil of the authorities. He doesn't take it out on middle management. He, he seeks a win-win outcome at all costs. He doesn't seek to force policy on all of the pagans. You notice that? He's concerned for his own personal holiness in this particular case. Um, so just, just keep that in mind. And you could, you could take time on your own and think about that. How did Daniel respectfully decline? Let's move on. We've seen the depth of his resolve. Now let's see the breadth of their resolve, or their results, the breadth of their results. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So again, what is this passage doing? It's setting up for us the character of Daniel and showing why God trusted him with the revelation of these incredibly important visions. Because he was a man of character. He was a man of conviction. He was a man of the Lord. He was a man of faith. Okay? This is very important. Um, their character and faith could support the resources God desired to endow. So as a result, God gives these guys supernatural understanding and supernatural wisdom. Verse 18, at the end of time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in to the chief of the eunuchs, brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. Now, here's what's happening. The king says, okay, three years is up. Chief eunuch, bring them up to me. Let's see if my investment paid off. Let's let me examine these men. Let's see if they're up to snuff, if they're ready to become my personal cabinet and entourage. So he's going to examine these guys, probably a series of questions, probably a series of interactions. Is, is, are these guys going to pass the test? Verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. 10 times better. Now again, um, why would God give his best to be used for the purposes of the Babylonian uh, agenda? Because God is trying to witness to Babylon. God is about the nations. He wants his best to be his best ambassador. So Nebuchadnezzar may think that he hired these guys to be his ambassadors, but what's really happening? God already recruited these four men to be his ambassadors. See, they're representing a higher kingdom. And the same exact thing is true for you. You may represent the company you work for. You may represent the school district you work for, the police force you're on, or whatever it is. But in reality, you even more so represent the kingdom that you belong to. 
And everything that you do has great implications. And it should be, and it often is true, it should be said that Christians are the most sought-after employees in the workplace for this exact reason, shouldn't it? And I, I do. I hear it all the time. I do. I hear it all the time. People are like, man, you know anybody from your church that's looking for a job? Because, man, unfortunately, we, we sometimes hear the opposite, right? The Christians should because we represent the attributes of God's kingdom. And then verse 21, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That speaks to the staying power of Daniel's ministry. Daniel's ministry survived through multiple administrations and multiple empires and multiple decades, all the way up to King Cyrus the Persian. It's incredible. His ministry had staying power. So let's finish this way. Uh, I want to give you guys four ways to compromise your character in the world. So if that's what you want to do this week, if you really want to compromise your character, I'm going to give you four ways to do it. Four ways to compromise your character in the world. Number one, if you want to write it down, fear lords, lowercase l, fear lords more than you fear the Lord, capital L. Fear lords more than you fear the Lord. Said another way, let pleasures and painless outcomes drive your behavior instead of a desire to be right with the Lord. I think the author here wants to create a juxtaposition between the chief eunuch who is afraid of who? He's afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. He's afraid of his king. He's, he's, he's a man who is centered around the gravitas of the power of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's making his decisions based off of the center of gravity that is the power of the Babylonian Empire. He wants to keep his head, understandably. So he's, his primary driving force is don't die, have a favorable outcome, make sure the king is happy. Now, what is the center of gravity for Daniel? It's not King Nebuchadnezzar, or else he wouldn't even have decided not to eat this particular food. Okay, I'll say it this way. The engine or driving force of Daniel's resolve was not grit, it was God's glory. Let me say it again. The driving force of Daniel's resolve and Daniel's conviction was not grit. He wasn't just more determined. It was God's glory. God's glory had weight. That's what glory means. You know that? It's gravitas. It's weight. Glory means the weightiness, the substance of God. And God's glory should be driving us, pushing us harder than any other weight or substance. And let me just say, there's a lot of weight and substance in this world. A lot of power. There's a lot of influence. There's a lot of fear. A lot of people and what they think. And those things all push us in different ways. The question is, as Christians, is the weight of God pushing you the most. You know that the fear of the Lord is really just another way of saying faith? That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's not, I'm terrified of God. Fear of the Lord means God has the most weight in my life. I'm, I fear him, meaning what he thinks is the most important thing. It's what drives me. It's what compels me. And here we have this chief of the eunuch who is driven by a separate Wait. Now let me say this. Let me put a fine point on this. You will never have character in the secret areas of your life until what you do is not just trying to make sure you have good outcomes in life. You, you will never have character in the secret areas of life until your chief aim is rightness with God, not worldly pleasures and painless outcomes with people. This is why Christians should be the most trustworthy individuals in the world because Christians do the right thing not so that they can be blessed and have a happy life and, and not be thought bad of by people. Those aren't superior motivations. Christians should be the most righteous people in the world because our number one goal is being right with God and that extends even into the secret areas of our life. So yeah, maybe no one's gonna see what you're looking at or thinking about or doing right now, but God does, and it puts a wedge between you and him, and his glory is your greatest goal. You wanna build trust in your marriage? You wanna build trust in your relationships? You wanna build trust with, 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 with people you've broken trust with? Show them that you're gonna do the right thing when no one's looking because you care about what God thinks. That is the only way we can really trust human behavior. Because outside of God, you're only living to avoid pain. So as long as I don't get caught, I'm going to do it. The Christian says, it doesn't matter if I get caught. God knows. 
That drives true, deep, authentic holiness. It's the why. Why do you not do something? Daniel isn't doing this because he's concerned about what people think. Daniel's doing this because God and his glory is at the center of his gravity. God's gravitas is pushing and driving Daniel. And guys, that's where true conviction lay. If you're just honoring your marriage because you don't want to get caught doing something or you don't have a bad life or if you're just, you know, you know not lying or sinning because, oh, I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want anything hard in my life, that's, that's not going to carry you. That's not true, true conviction. Many of us are very driven by the fear of man, by the way. Consider that. What, what's really driving you? Okay, number two. So the first way, if you want to compromise your character in the world is fear of lords rather than fear of the Lord. The second way is don't pre-decide where to draw the line. Okay? If you want to compromise your character in the world, don't pre-decide where you're going to draw the line. Okay? I am a foodaholic. I love to overconsume calories. Okay, I said it. <laughs> Someone give me a hug now. Here's what I've learned about myself. If I wait until I'm at the restaurant to decide whether or not I'm going to get more food or dessert, guess what I'll do? I will get it. Every time, right? It, it's, just, it's just the truth, man. If I don't pre-decide, if I, if I wait until 6 in the morning to decide if I'm going to get up and run, guess what I'm not doing the next morning? I'm not going to run, okay? So if you want to lose your character in the world, compromise your character, just wait until the moment comes to decide if you're going to do something. Here, this is real. I get this straight out of the text. I'm not making this up. Daniel resolved in his heart where? In verse 8. And then he kind of sought to see if there was a win-win scenario. But don't miss it. If that chief of the eunuch was like, nope, you're eating the king's meat. Daniel would have gone to the stake for that. Why? Because he had already decided. Didn't matter the outcome. The outcome was not the reason. He didn't decide because he knew God was going to let him do it. He decided because it was the right thing. He drew the line and he said, I'm not crossing that. Pre-decide. Here's the way Satan wins. Here's the way Satan wins. He boils the frog. I'm convinced this is the number one, the number one way that the enemy is gaining ground in the church, he boils the frog. You know what I mean by that? He just slowly chips away at what you think is appropriate or okay or right or healthy in your decisions. Just slowly. You know, I, I, I think I'm going to wait till I get to the wedding, decide if I'm going to have a few drinks. Instead of just saying, this is my line. This is where sobriety begins. And this is where sobriety ends. You know, I'm going to decide what my relationships with the opposite sex are like at work. I'm going to decide what I'm going to do, what I'm not going to do. I'm going to decide what my boundaries are like on social media. I'm going to decide when I'm clear-headed, when I'm in good counsel, when I'm in the word, when God is speaking. I'm not going to wait till I feel like doing something to decide if it's the right thing because I guarantee you'll compromise. Pre-decide. Make decisions in counsel that reflect God's word and Christ's character. Have accountability around those and then set it and leave it. I've already decided I'm not going to do that. Satan got it, I just, it's Pastor Sam here for a minute. Satan is getting too much ground because Christians are giving it to him. We're letting the waves of sin erode the base of our conscience and the base of our character day after day after day to the point where, guys, you know, the, the, the phrase I hear more than anything else in pastoral ministry, I hear this phrase, I don't know how I got here. I never thought I would have done this. I never thought I would go this far with my sin. To which I'm like, yeah, Satan boiled the frog. He just chipped away. So where is the battle? The battle is in the small things. The small things. They're not small things. Okay? The battle is not, once you get here, the battle is 10 paces before you get there. The small things matter. So if you want to compromise your character, then don't pre-decide where the line is. Number three. The third way is to assume that compromise doesn't affect clarity or capability. Assume that compromise doesn't affect clarity or capability. There is supposed to be, I think, a connection here in the text between Daniel's conviction 
and Daniel's ability to discern God's word. There is a connection in your ability to lead your family, to lead the people in your life, to lead yourself. There is a connection between your own personal decision to trust God in your decisions and your ability to see and hear from God. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Here's what I've learned in life. I can't sin while I'm looking at God. Have you noticed that? What do you do when you want to sin? You go, hold on, I'll be right back. You look down. You, can't, you, know, you know, actually, scientists have proved there's no such thing as multitasking. It's true. It's literally a myth, even for moms. <laughs> multitasking, you're actually not thinking about two things at once. You're quickly moving from one thing to the other. And what sin is, is sin is, God, hold on a minute. I have to stop looking at you because I can't actually look you in the eyes and sin. It's not possible. So I have to look down. But here's the problem. What is the posture of looking down? It's just guilt. And it's shame. You, you know, you ever get caught in sin? What's the first thing you do? Just catch your kids lying or something? Just this is, the, this is the posture of shame. What is the posture of worship? It's looking up. So the reality is, is that you take your eyes off Christ to sin. And this is why our holiness is so important. It's so important, not because we're purchasing our righteousness, but because we have to keep our eyes locked on the Lord. Sin is like a spiritual cataract. It clouds your vision. If you don't feel like you're leading your family, you don't feel like you're leading people in your life, it's very likely that your attention is split. You're too busy trying to figure out how to not get caught in this area. You're too, too busy trying to figure out how to, how to maintain this pleasure you really like in your life, even if it's not intrinsically immoral. Stop dividing your attention. Secret, unchecked sin causes you to adjust your stride. Okay, that's a running term. Oftentimes, if you have pain in your left foot, you end up getting pain in your right foot because you adjust your stride to compensate. When you're living in a life of sin, you're adjusting your whole life to try to care for this area of sin you don't want to deal with. It ends up hurting you in other ways. You're overcorrecting. Sin slowly begins to calcify your heart causing you not to be as sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the ultimate terrifying reality is that that leads to unbelief, which is, by the way, bless me, the Holy Spirit. The one unforgivable sin isn't something you do, it's something that you've done so much that it's calcified your conscience where you no longer believe in the Lord. It's really important. So if you want to compromise your conviction, don't do what Daniel did. Don't see that this one seemingly small decision would actually have to do with whether or not he would hear from the Lord or not. Number four, and this is a really important one. Sorry if I'm being a little intense this week, but the text is kind of intense, okay? Number four, the fourth way to compromise your conviction is to stand alone. Is to stand alone. Daniel, he led alone, but he didn't stand alone. You notice that? The other guys were with him in this. Someone's got to lead, but there may come a point in your life where you have to stand alone because, but, but make sure that if you stand alone, it's because no one wants to stand with you, not just because you're too lazy to get out of bed and go be with God's people. You hear me? If you stand alone in life, make sure it's because no one is bold enough to stand with you, not because you just simply didn't prioritize the community of Christ. You need your brothers and sisters I'm not just talking about, oh, Sam said if I go to church, everything will be great. No, but I guarantee you, I see it all day, every day, Christians wander from the church and they come back limping. And they say the same thing over and over again. I never should have left the community. How did I get here? Well, first of all, you left. You left the people that would have talked some sense into you. You left the people that were preaching the gospel to you. You left your brothers and sisters that were praying for you and holding you accountable and caring for you and noticing when you were struggling. You left all that. And you went and spent all your time with your secular pagan coworkers, and now you've fallen. Of course you did. Don't stand alone. God gave you this great gift. It's the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ. It's your brothers and sisters. You need them. Daniel stood and he led, but he did not stand alone. The enemy devours by separating people from the herd. Watch National Geographic. You learn a lot about life. Okay? <laughs> the animals pluck them out of the herd, and then they devour them. So maybe you're, you're, you're like, oh, I'm kind of drifting from the herd. Get in 
like the, think of the big penguin circle, get in the middle of that thing. Okay? <laughs> you need it. You need the body. Let me conclude here. Let me finish. Daniel is a good example for life, right? But he's not the source of life. Let's remember that. The mistake we can make sometimes with passages like this is we can go, okay, the point is I need to be like Daniel. No, that's not the point. The point is you need the greater Daniel. Daniel's obedience reminds us of the one who was perfectly obedient on our behalf. Let me remind you that even though Daniel stood for this and even though Daniel chose not to be contaminated by the meat, Daniel was still contaminated by sin. It was only because of the future grace of Christ who would atone for Daniel and for you that Daniel could be saved at all. Daniel is a foreshadow for us, a type for us of a better Daniel, the obedient servant who was faithful to the end. Jesus followed the Father perfectly in obedience, and we are saved not because we did Daniel stuff, but because we have a greater Daniel. And he was obedient and faithful perfectly for us. And listen to me, don't miss the gospel here. Jesus chose to become defiled so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. Jesus, if you will, chose to eat the king's meats so that we could walk away righteous. He was obedient and he absorbed our defilement and gave us his righteousness. Now, the, the equivalent in the New Testament of, of faithfulness is not choosing not to eat meat, praise God. The equivalent in the New Testament is which table are you bellied up to? Is it Christ and his body or is it the offerings of this world? That's the point. In the new covenant, the, the, the dietary and restrictive law, those are gone. Faithfulness in the new covenant is do we come to the table of Christ? Is he our sustenance? Is he our caloric, metabolic intake? Is he what we feast on? Or is it the world? And that's the Christian life. Amen? That's all I got. I got three minutes. Okay. We're going we're gonna to pray. I was going to break us into circles, but I talked too long. Uh, we're going to pray. You got, you got those discussion questions. I want to encourage you guys. If you want to hang out and talk, great. Um, take them home. Talk about them. Talk about them over lunch, whatever it is. Let me pray us out. Why don't you stand with me? Father, you're so good to us. Thank you for showing so much kindness to us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you that we're not saved because of our grit and determination and our ability to say no, but rather we're saved because of our faith in you, Christ. And your obedience has been accredited to us. And because of that truth, because we have been fully given righteousness, we choose to live holy as a response to what you've done for us. God, thank you for the example that Daniel has given us. Thank you for Jesus, the greater Daniel whose obedience was not just an example, it accomplished righteousness for us. And God, we just pray as we go now out into the world, into work environments on Monday and school and wherever people are going this week, God, may we truly be a witness to the king and to the kingdom. God, may your kingdom attributes and the shalom peace of your rule break into spaces all around Grants Pass and Medford and all of Southern Oregon this week. God, may we be ambassadors of a great and true reality that is coming, which is the kingdom of God. Lord, help us not to compromise. Lord, help us to, in faith, trust you. Lord, help us to, to care for the, even the secret areas of our life. Help us to desire to be right with you because your glory is greatest joy. Lord, I pray all that over my brothers and my sisters. Lord, protect us from the evil one. We love you so much, Jesus. You are the king in your name. Amen.